Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. I just want you all to know what a joy it is to sing with you every week. It is an encouragement to my soul to hear your voices as we sing out. A mark of a healthy church is a singing church. So thank you for your ministry to me and to one another. Uh, if you would be turning to Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. And as you turn to Hebrews 10, uh, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's class. And so you guys can make your way uh, back to the classroom there. And the volunteers will be there to greet you and to uh, uh, have their time with you this morning there uh, in God's Word together. Uh, as I said, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning, f- finishing up Hebrews 10 as we continue through Uh, this book of the Bible, verses 32 through 39. So as we do every week, uh, just allow me to read our passage for us this morning, and then we will pause and take a moment to pray and to ask for the Lord's help. So Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray together. Father, we once more thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together as your people, the privilege of being able to come together this morning and pray together, and the privilege of being able to sing together and hear your word read aloud together, and now to dive into the truth of your word together. Father, these are all good gifts from you, and we desperately need all of it. And so, Father, we thank you for the finished work of Christ that has bought these privileges for us because we don't deserve them. And so we look to Christ this morning, and we just want to express our gratitude for what Christ has done in our place and for the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit that you have sent to dwell in all those who trust in Christ and You have promised us that through your indwelling spirit and through the truth of your word that you'll change us and transform us and make us more like Jesus. And so, Father, we're that your spirit would be at work in us through the truth of your word, conforming us to the likeness of Jesus. Father, I pray just as we did last week in that challenging passage that you would use your word to convict us this morning.
that you would use it to draw us toward Jesus, that we would see more of him and know more of him and be changed as we see him. And so, Father, I ask for your help this morning. I ask that you would guide my words, allow me to only speak what is true of you and true of your word, and I pray that it would be for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've mentioned this before, but something I really appreciate about the Bible is the realism that it presents to us about our walk with Christ, right? God knows that we're going to face struggles and temptations and seasons of difficulty in our walk with Christ. At no point in God's word is there any sense of idealism that somehow we come to faith in Christ and then all of a sudden every struggle of our life, every trouble we could ever have simply poofs and disappears and goes away, right? In fact, even the very reason that we have these New Testament books, right, these things we call letters, Paul's letters, the, the, this letter that was written by the author of Hebrews, the letters that were written by Peter, and so on and so forth. The reason we have those is because there were churches in the first century who were struggling. They were having a difficult time. They were letting go of some theological truth or they were being tempted to head down an unhealthy path or, or they were struggling with some sin issue inside the church or in their lives or they were permitting like the Corinthians did some sin issue to continue in the church, right? So, so the whole reason we have much of the New Testament is because of the realism of the Bible that walking with Christ is hard. It's difficult, It's a battle. It's a daily struggle. And as I said, the book of Hebrews is not any different. Remember, the the book of Hebrews, from what we can tell to the best of our knowledge, was written to a, a first century group of Jewish people who had come to know Christ and had formed a local church. And this group of people needed to be encouraged, instructed, and challenged. It seems pretty clear that uh, when the author of Hebrews wrote this letter to them, this sermon almost we could say to them in the book of Hebrews, that this group of people was, uh, they were being tempted to, to walk away from the church. That They were being faced with trials and persecution and suffering and mockery and they were exhausted and they were weary and for many of them they began uh, they began to think look to think look life wasn't this hard when I was a Jew before I became a Christian wouldn't it just be easier to go back to the old ways to go back to what we had before my life would be so much more peaceful and at rest maybe this Jesus thing just isn't worth it And so the author of Hebrews wrote this magnificent letter to them and said, you don't want to do that. Christ is far too glorious to turn back on. 
He is more glorious than the angels. In fact, he created them. All things were created through him. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the exact representation of God himself. God has spoken to us through Jesus. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than Abraham. He is greater than the Old Testament sacrificial system that you're attempted to return to. He is the final, complete, sufficient sacrifice. If you turn away from him, there remains no sacrifice. There is nowhere else to turn, and you will remain in your sins, Hebrew people. Do not turn away. Do not throw away, as we just read, your confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is what he's pleading with them to do. This is the realism I'm talking about, right? This is, these are the kinds of struggles that you and I have in seasons of our life. This is the struggles that the Hebrew people were having right now when this book was written, that this reality that we're reading about. And so this is what the author of Hebrews is doing in chapter 10. Remember we talked about this important transition that happened in verse 19 of chapter 10. We've spent 10 chapters with this theological foundation being laid under our feet about the glories of Christ and how he's uh, superior to all other things, right? We, we, like I just mentioned, right? This theological foundation is laid, that he is, he is our only hope. And then this transition in verse 19 happens where it turns from that theological foundation and the author of Hebrews starts applying it to our lives. He starts giving us commands and instructions about what we are to do with this information. In fact, I want you to see this overall structure beginning in verse 19 where that transition happens all the way to the end of chapter 10, what we just read through today through verse 39. And last week, right in the middle of this section, 19 through 39, we saw this this hard-hitting warning passage that the author of Hebrews delivered to us. These warnings that we need to hear if we're going to walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. But what I want you to notice is that on either side of that warning section, that warning section that we saw in 26 through 31, on either side of that, almost it's like a sandwich, right? On either side, it's a set of instructions and commands. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying, look, this is what you need to be about. This is what you need to be doing if you don't want to suffer the consequences of the warnings that I'm giving you in 26 through 31, And so before we get to the warnings, right, we saw this a few weeks back, uh, verses 19 through 25, we have those three commands. Verse 22, let us draw near to God. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we saw this clear connection between the, 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 the gift of the church, the, the, this need we have to not neglect meeting with others because we all need to be stirred up to love and to good works that we need each other. If we're going to walk faithfully with Christ, if we're not going to fall victim to these, verse 26, ongoing deliberate sins that are so dangerous to toy around with, we need each other. Right? That's what the author of Hebrews was calling us to. But remember, as I mentioned, these Hebrew believers were already struggling. 
So I just want us to, to, to put ourselves in their position. He wrote this book, this letter, because he knew they were struggling. And just think how this warning passage would have fallen on them. Right? This is a group of people who it seems were at some level considering, thinking about, struggling with a temptation to walk away from the church. And he says, look, if you go on with this deliberate sin, verse 26, after receiving the knowledge of truth that you have, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There is nowhere else to turn, but instead what you're going to face is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And then he concludes in verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so there is this weight that is resting on these new believers who were in a season of struggle. And it is without question that he wants this warning to, to rest solidly upon their hearts. He wants them to feel the warning. He wants them to realize the weight of it. But yet at the very same time, he wants to help them see how they can be lifted from their state of spiritual struggle. He wants them to see how they can be lifted from their state of uncertainty so that they will not ultimately find these warnings and these consequences to be true of them. He wants them to see how they can endure faithfully even when they are in, in the midst of a season of spiritual struggle. And I pray that that's what this passage accomplishes for each of us this morning as well. That if you're in a dry season of your soul, if you're in a place of spiritual discouragement this morning, if you're discouraged in your walk with Christ this morning, then yes, God wants you to be warned. He wants you to hear the warning of verses 26 through 31. But he also wants to meet you where you are and lift you out of it. And that's what he's doing in verses 32 through 39 for us this morning. So how does God intend to lift us from spiritual discouragement and instead find ourselves enduring faithfully for the glory of Christ? Now, before I answer that question with our outline for this morning, I just want to say some of you may not be in a place of spiritual discouragement. Some of you may be in a season of where things are going really well for you. So I just say to you, still hear this this morning because those days are coming. And you're going to need to hear this because you're going to need to be sustained in your faith when that day comes. And so it is, remember, a reality for all of us. And so please hear me out this morning. So hear God's word out this morning, that is. So how does God intend to lift us from spiritual discouragement and instead find ourselves enduring faithfully for Christ? Well, there are two simple answers that we're going to work through this morning. Number one. Recall what sustained you in past trials. Recall what sustained you in past trials. And number two, cling to the truths that will sustain you in the future. Recall what sustained you in the past. Cling to the truths that will sustain you in the future. Now that may not sound profound, but let's get into it. And I hope you will see how God intends to use these things in your life. So number one. 
recall what sustained you in past trials. Look there with me again at verses 32 through 34. The author of Hebrews says in verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Now, before we even get into the details of verses 32 through 34, I just want to be sure that we see big picture what the author of Hebrews is calling on the Hebrew people to do, what he's calling on us to do. What does he say? He says, recall the former days. Look back. Right? And that verse, verse 32, begins with the word but. He's saying, look, this is in contrast to this fearful reality. In fact, we can see the connection, right? It says, verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened. Well, remember what the beginning of the warning passage said in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, go back, Hebrews, go back and remember what it was like for you after you received the knowledge of the truth. Go back and remember what it was like for you when you were enlightened. How did you respond to that? What, what happened to you in those moments? And what does he say? He says, look back on those former days after you were enlightened, after you came to know the truth of the gospel, after you uh, acknowledged and expressed faith in Christ. What were those days like? Verse 32 says, they endured a hard struggle with suffering. The word hard struggle is an interesting combination of words. The word hard means in the original language can mean uh, uh, many or a lot or even intense. And the word struggle means, it's where we get the word athletic from. It means contest. It is a, a, a contest of suffering. It was extremely difficult days for the Hebrew people after they first came to Christ. And verse 33 tells us a little bit about what happened to them. What was this difficult, hard suffering like for them? Well, it says in verse 33 that sometimes they were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. In the original language, the word publicly exposed is, is the word we get the word theater from. In other words, they were put on display intentionally by their community so that they could be mocked and reproached and ridiculed and afflicted because of their faith in Jesus Christ. This is what they were enduring. Now, sometimes... Sometimes what they were experiencing was that ridicule directly. There were certain groups who, who had to deal with that. They were the ones suffering. But it says in verse 33, there was another group who also was partnering with those who were so treated, who had the faith and the courage to align themselves with those who were being uh, uh, persecuted and who were being mocked and, and, and ridiculed and in fact, the, the, the persecution exceeded beyond the mockery and the ridicule, and many of them were even thrown in prison. Right, we see that in verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison. These new believers 
had come to faith in Christ. They left their Jewish community. They had formed their new community of believers. Because of that, they were ridiculed, mocked, scorned, uh, publicly exposed to this humiliation. Many of them were thrown in prison. And many of them also then partnered with those in prison and showed them compassion. Now, what is it talking about when it says they, they partnered with those so treated and they had compassion on those in prison? Well, in first century prison, it was not like our modern American prisons. I'm not saying prison in America is easy or that I want to go there, but it is exponentially easier than what it would have been like for these first century believers. Because when you were put in prison, essentially what that meant is the government stopped caring about you. They didn't provide you with clothes to change into each day. They didn't have laundry service for you. They didn't bring you food. They didn't have a kitchen where they cooked and provided meals for you each day. Essentially, if you were put in prison and you didn't have someone on the outside who was willing to care for you, you were going to die of starvation and exposure. That was your fate. So these first century Christians had some really difficult decisions to make about partnering with those who were so treated. They had some difficult decisions to make about showing compassion to those in prison. Now, it's easy for us to sit where we are and say, well, of course I would do that. But put yourselves in their shoes. Let's say this morning we were in a wicked and cruel country where gospel proclamation had been outlawed. And even as I'm speaking right now, as we, Lord willing, would be in spite of the law, the government came in, the corrupt police come in, and they handcuff me for doing what I'm doing right now. And they take me away and they put me in prison. And it's a prison like this where I'm going to die if you don't bring me food. I'm going to die of my conditions if you don't provide for me. And so you go home this afternoon and you're sitting around your lunch table with your family. Men, think about this. You're sitting there with your wife and your children And you say to them, what are we going to do? If I go, I'm exposing that I'm part of this group. And I'm likely going to be sharing a prison cell with Pastor Jonathan. And it's likely that because of that, if I out myself, if people begin to know who I am, that it's going to ruin my family business or my job or whatever it may have been and we are going to be economically wrecked and probably lose everything that we have. You want to care for your wife and you want to care for your children but yet your brother in Christ or maybe your sister in Christ is starving in prison. You see this wasn't 
simply a prison ministry like we know of today where we go in and go out. It's, you know, we, we serve, we share the truth of the gospel with them while we're there. We, we maybe fellowship with the believers who are there in prison who have been redeemed and who God is at work in. No, no, this is putting yourself and your family at great risk. And look, it wasn't just theoretical because what does verse 34 say happened? You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So they boldly, courageously, faithfully went and cared for their brothers and sisters in Christ, provided food for them. But what happened because of that whether it was the government or simply allowed by the government, they came or a mob came and took everything that they had. Look, we, we barely have the categories to understand what this would have been like. Because for most of us in America, even if a natural disaster comes through and wipes out everything that we have, to some degree, whether it's FEMA or insurance or whatever it may be, we're going to, as hard as it is, and it is extremely hard, and I'm not making light of people who have been through that, but you're going to have people coming behind you providing for you in most situations. There was no insurance for them to claim for their losses. There was no court where they could sue. It was the courts themselves. It was the system itself that had taken it from them. There was no recourse for them. They simply lost everything that they had because they were willing to partner with those so treated and show compassion on those in prison. <clears throat> and notice what verse 34 says about how they responded to that happening to them. It says that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. How does anyone joyfully accept the plundering of your property? That seems almost unbelievable, right? How is that even possible? What in the world is God talking about in verse 34? Well, the very next line explains how they did that. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since or because they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. You see, the reason they were able to joyfully accept the plundering of their property is because they knew it wasn't their most valuable or most important asset. They knew that something greater belonged to them something eternal that could not be touched, something that would last forever. In other words, they were living within eternal perspective. This is the inheritance bought for us by the blood of Jesus Christ that the author of Hebrews mentioned earlier in chapter 9, verse 15, where he says, therefore, talking about Jesus, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The promised eternal inheritance. This is exactly what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. 
And look, many of you who have been under my preaching for many years have heard me reference this passage probably three dozen times. But here it is again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now listen to this. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, this, this glorious inheritance that we will receive when we receive our new bodies, when we are resurrected with Jesus, when we are in the new heavens and the new earth and the presence of Jesus Christ, he himself being our living hope and that inheritance we received of experiencing the glories of Jesus Christ will be imperishable. It's imperishable. It can never be marred or, or scarred. It, is all, it will always be there. It will never come to an end. It is undefiled. And my favorite word of all three of these from First Peter is that it is unfading. That just as, just as glorious as Christ appears the first day we see him, he will seem just as glorious to us, if not more, a trillion years from then. It is an unfading inheritance. It's why we sing the line in Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. You see, it's this eternal perspective with their eyes fixed on Christ and the promised inheritance that sustained them through those difficult days. And therefore, they were able to joyfully accept the plundering of their property. Now listen, that doesn't mean that when everything was taken from them, that they were like giving high fives to each other and being like, man, this is so awesome that everything was taken from us, right? That's, that's not what it means when it says that, they're, uh, that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. That's not what joy means here. What I think it does mean, however, is that there was not any feeling of regret in their souls for what they did. There was not any remorse or regret. They were filled with joy that they were able to serve King Jesus by showing compassion to their brothers and sisters in prison. Right? It, it means that they carried themselves, they responded in such a way that no one questioned where their priorities are. Right, the, the, In no sense did those who were in prison feel guilty that they had lost everything. They, or they didn't make them feel guilty. They weren't like, I showed you compassion, man, but because of you, I lost everything. Right? No, they, it wasn't like that. Right? They joyfully accepted it. They were willing to accept it because it was worth it to them. It was worth it to bring glory to Jesus Christ. It was worth it to love their brothers and sisters in Christ, to love the saints, and to love their church in that way. And if their property had to go, then so be it. They had better property in heaven anyway. And I just can't help but mention, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but how stark of a contrast this is to how American believers respond to every slight or perceived 
persecution that comes our way today. Social media is full of Christians grumbling and complaining. I just think, man, if, if this happened to us today, the, our first response would likely, and I'm just being honest here, right, would be to hop on Facebook and complain about it. Am I wrong? Look, I'm not saying we shouldn't stand up for justice and for people to be treated justly. I'm not saying I want Christians to be persecuted, but I am saying we say something to the world with how we respond to it. And are we a joyful people or a grumbling and complaining people? It's this, this kind of radical, joy-filled obedience is only possible if you have confidence in the reality of a better abiding possession of heaven. Now, this is getting to the heart of the matter. This is what the author of Hebrews wants them to remember. Look, he's saying to them, look, I know I laid these warnings on you heavy. That, that look, if, you, if someone goes on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, there's going to be serious judgment that's going to come upon them. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Look, Hebrew Christians, I know you're struggling right now, but listen. Listen, I know these trials are hard right now, Hebrew believers. I know you're weary. I know you're tired. I know you feel like giving up. But just remember, you made it before. You'll make it again. Remember what sustained you then? What sustained you then was your confidence in the eternal reward that Christ has for you, that he's keeping for you, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Remember back to those days and hang on to it again. And it will sustain you once more as you walk through these trials today. See, that's what he wants to do. He wants them to remember what got them through the trials in the past so that they could get through the trials in the present. Look, this is, this is such relevant, practical advice for us in our walk with Christ. So just hear me out this morning. Look, there are going to be seasons of your life where you feel more spiritually alive than other seasons. There are going to be seasons of your walk with Christ where you are more effective, experiencing more victory in your battle against temptations and sins. There are going to be seasons where you demonstrate greater faithfulness in the midst of suffering. But there's going to be other seasons, right? There's going to be the valleys where you feel like you're in a spiritual desert, and you feel weary, and you're just tired of the battle against sin. You're tired of the difficulty of, of every day trying to pursue faithfulness in the workplace when often it's just you feel like you're up against a wall and you're tired and you're worn out and even sometimes tempted just to throw in the towel and give up on all of it. And God is saying to us in this passage, when that happens, try to reach back and recall the former days of spiritual vitality Go back and look to those mountains that you walked through before that sustained you and grab on to that faith.
and bring it into the present. Look, th this, is, this is why we as elders want to emphasize, and Lord willing, we'll continue to emphasize the need for you to have the spiritual disciplines in your life of consistent Bible reading, of gathering with God's people, of being a part of a life group, of memorizing God's word, of prayer, of supplication, prayer of confession. In many ways, you can think of it like packing for a hiking trip. All right, if you, if you hike the Appalachian Trail, there are long distances between resupply points. You can't pack everything you need for the whole journey. It's not possible. Unless you're going to like pull a truck behind you, right? You've you got to take what you can need to get you to the next point. And you've got to fill up and get to the next point. Look, the time to prepare for the spiritual valleys, the time to prepare is suffering for suffering is not when you're in the midst of it. It's before you get to it. You fill up on the truth of God's word. You fill up on prayer and fellowship so that when those difficult days come, it will sustain you in the midst of it. There's another song we sing in this church that, that Dennis faithfully leads us in often called Come Thou Fount. And there's a line in that song that sounds strange if you don't know what the word means, but it says, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. And that word Ebenezer comes straight from the Old Testament. When Samuel has, uh, and God's people have experienced a, a, a miraculous and supernatural defeat of the Philistines, God comes in and he wipes out the Philistines and Samuel says, let's, let's raise this Ebenezer to remember what God did this day, right? The word Ebenezer means stone of help. And he raises up that stone. Why does Samuel do that? To put a mark down. And to say, next time the battle comes, I know you're going to think we're not going to win. Next time the battle comes, you're going to forget God's faithfulness. You're going to forget that he got you through. And you're going to be in fear. And you think the Philistines are going to wipe us out. And when you feel that way, Israel, look to that stone and remember. And so in many ways, what the author of Hebrews is telling us to do in our lives is when we walk through difficult days and we see God's faithfulness, raise that figurative, that figurative Ebenezer in your life. Put that mark down and remember God was faithful. He got me through it so that next time you're suffering, next time you're going through difficult days, next time you're going through a season of, uh, of just spiritual uh, dryness, you can look back and say, Lord, it feels like I'm never going to get out of this, but I remember when you got me out before. Look to your past. Recall the former days. Now look, let's be honest. Some of you might be new believers and you haven't experienced that valley in your life yet. You're like, there's valleys in the Christian life? It hasn't felt that way for me. Or, or maybe you look back on your life and you feel like, well, I've been a Christian for a while, but I don't feel like I've ever had this like, great experience where God's faithfulness has been clearly on display that I can look back and grab onto. 
Well, the first thing I would say is just, we do need to hear the warning passage of 26 through 31. And if we haven't experienced or seen God's faithfulness in our lives, then it may be evidence that we don't know him to begin with. But the other answer to that dilemma is it's why we need each other. Because your testimony of God's faithfulness helps remind me of God's faithfulness. Right? When I can't see God's faithfulness in my past, maybe I can see it in your past. And you can remind me of how God was faithful to you and of the truth you held on to to get you through that trial. Of how when you endured hardship, how you fixed your eyes on things above and God faithfully delivered you in the midst of it. And I can say, praise be to God, thank you for that. That helps me walk through these difficult days. Look, the other answer for that, I would just encourage you as Christian biography, at least once a year, find a solid biography about a faithful man or woman of God from the past and read it. It will sustain you and God will use it to encourage your soul. I promise you. And if you want recommendations, email me. I'm happy to send you some ideas of what you can read. So look, God wants us when we're going through spiritual struggles to look back on the past, to see where he has been faithful, to see what we believed in then and to bring it into the present. And that's the important piece. He doesn't want us to stay in the past. He wants us to bring that into the present. And that brings us to our second and just quickly final truth for this morning. That it's not only that we must recall his past faithfulness, we have to cling to the truths that will sustain us into the future today. We've got to hang on to those truths now, which is why verse 35, the author of Hebrews says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence. He says, look back on that confidence you have, but you've got to bring it into the present and don't rid your heart of it. Remember your confidence in eternal things that sustained you through those difficult days and do not throw it away. Do not get rid of it. Cling to it. Because if you do, verse 35 says, there is great reward for that. Not, it's not God rewarding you because you're a confident person. It is saying that if you have confidence in eternal things, it will sustain you in such a way that you will receive the eternal reward in the last day. Now, why is that? Let's, let's bring this together, verse 36. For or because you have need of endurance. You have need of endurance. This is what he means when he says to not throw away your confidence. By God's grace, we must continually, throughout our life, find that confidence and faith in eternal things because we must endure to the end. We've already seen this theme in the book of Hebrews. We saw it in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. The author of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So there's that love for one another like we saw earlier in Hebrews 10. For, because, Hebrews 3, 14, we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence past firm to the end. 
future. We look back, we remember, but we also must cling to it now because we have need of endurance. The author of Hebrews says it again in Hebrews chapter 6. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And this shouldn't surprise us because it's exactly what Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, verses 9 through 13. Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Listen, this is the whole point of one of Jesus' most well-known parables, that if you grew up in church, you're probably familiar with, right? The parable of the soils. He talks about the man who casts, seed, uh, casts the seed. Some of it falls on the road. Some of it falls in the rock. Some of it falls in the weeds. Other of it falls in the good soil. <clears throat> what falls on the road doesn't grow at all. What falls on the rock springs up quickly, but then it quickly gets scorched by the sun. The stuff that falls in the weeds, it grows up and, and seems to be doing well, but the weeds just choke it out and it dies. And then the seeds that are in the good soil grow and bear fruit. The whole point of that parable is that only one of those soils endures to the end. The one that bears fruit. In other words... Genuine saving faith in Christ is not about the immediate response because immediate responses can be fabricated, can be deceptive, right? If you would have looked at those plants in that parable in the first day, they would have all looked like they were doing well. Well, except what fell on the road. It, that never made it in, right? But the, the one that fell on the rocks, it grew, right? There it is. The plant's doing well. It's green. It's growing. The one in the weeds is growing at that point taller than the weeds. And the one in the good soil, they're all at the same level. They've grown at the same rate. But Jesus explained the parable and he said, look, the one on the rocks is those who never had root. Who never connected to a local church. Who never pursued the truth of God's word. And so when suffering comes, it's out. The one that was in the, the weeds, it did well, but eventually the deceitfulness of riches and the worries and anxieties of this world choke it out and it dies. But the one of the good soil, the genuine faith, the saving faith, bears fruit and endures to the end. So the warning for us this morning, I just want to be really clear about this. We have need of endurance. There is a place for looking to the past, right? The author of Hebrews makes that clear. But that's not what we must rely on to move into the future. We can't throw it away. We've got to keep our confidence. We have need of endurance. Look, one of the greatest <clears throat> tragedies of the American church is decisionism. 
this confidence we give people who maybe walked an aisle or, quote, made a decision to come to Christ, and they express faith in Christ that day, but there is no fruit in their life. There is no enduring faith. There is no evidence that they know Jesus at all. And you talk to them, and they say, yeah, but, I mean, I know, I get it, but I trusted him, so I'm good. No, the Bible says you have need of endurance. That saving faith, genuine saving faith, is enduring faith. That the most clear mark that saving faith belongs to you is that your faith endures. That's why the author of Hebrews says in verse 36 that you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you can receive what is promised. You can receive this reward that you look to that sustained you through the trials. And then verses 37 and 38, he's quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2. Yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. Again, this is reaching back to what we saw in verse 25. The reason we need to meet together to encourage one another to be committed to a local body is because the day is drawing near. It's on the way. And the righteous one, the one who is declared to be righteous by God, shall live by faith. But if someone shrinks back, God has no pleasure in them. That's a sobering verse. Either your faith endures to the last day, or you shrink back. Verse 39 says you shrink back and are destroyed. That's what it means when it says God has no pleasure in him. It means that you are under his wrath and condemnation because the evidence of your life is one that you did not have saving faith because your faith did not endure. Now, again, let's be clear. This is not saying that you must have perfect faith or that you're not going to have seasons where your faith is stronger than other seasons, right? The Bible is real about that. The Hebrew believers were struggling their faith was weak in this moment. But when you look at your life as a whole, the peaks, the valleys, the good times, the bad times, is the evidence one of enduring faith. And listen, it's why we need each other in this church. We need it for a couple of reasons. One, I can look back on my life and self-deceive and think I'm different than I am and I need you to be honest with me. We need to be honest with each other and say, I know you think you're walking faithfully with Christ and bearing fruit, but it doesn't really seem to be apparent in your life. And I say that out of love for you because I don't want you to shrink back and be destroyed. And the other reason we need the church is just because we need to, as verse, uh, chapter 10 calls us to, spur one another to love and good works so that we can endure to the last day. But praise be to God for these encouraging words of verse 39. The author of Hebrews wants to encourage the people he is writing to, and he says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith <clears throat> and therefore preserve their souls. He's saying, look, hear the warning. 
Hear the warning of 26 through 31. Let it rest on you. But look at your life and look at God's faithfulness. Look at what sustained you. You, in fact, have been clinging to the truth, Hebrew uh, Christians. You're not of those who shrink back. You are those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so what God is calling us to do this morning is to look back on our lives have we been though, uh, are we in the category of those who have had enduring faith? And if so, praise be to God, be encouraged this morning. If not, then I plead with you, come talk to me, talk to one of the elders. We want to help you get to that place so that our souls and your soul will be preserved on the last day. Listen, it's right there in our mission statement. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Christ through gospel proclamation, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, gospel proclamation, intentional discipleship, <clears throat> I apologize, gospel proclamation, biblical teaching, intentional discipleship, and love for one another, that we may present all mature in Christ. We want your soul to be preserved to the last day. I want my soul to be preserved to the last day, and so we need one another to continually remind us of the good news of the gospel and to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for how it sustains us and keeps us, for how it guards us against sin. We thank you for its honesty, that we're gonna struggle spiritually, we're gonna struggle in our work with Christ, but how we can come to a place of enduring faith and, and health and be restored. Father, I'm thankful for my brothers and sisters in Christ who do that for me every single week, even as we sing together and I hear the joy in their voices. It encourages my soul and helps me to endure to the end. And so I pray that that would be true for all of us in this room, that we would listen to one another sing, that in our life groups this week, as we have conversations about this passage, that it would encourage our souls, that we would hear testimonies of God's faithfulness in difficult days in our past and it would encourage others to keep on going, faithfully serving and bearing fruit for the glory of Christ. Father, I pray that you would use this passage to bear much fruit in this church for the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.